And it's it's it what it does do it brings out extreme amounts of creative energy. Without this approach, we couldn't have built the Q lattice. I can say that for absolute sure. If you try to put Q lattice development into a rigorous top-down hierarchical scheme of you do this, you do that, and some boss figuring out what everybody should do now, that boss would have to be a genius beyond the beyond the beyond human capabilities to achieve what we have achieved. Welcome back to Deep Tech Stories, a podcast making creators, entrepreneurs, and idealists in the deep tech space accessible by highlighting their stories and pulling their ideas from the lab into the real world. I'm Philipp Stürmer, and on the show today, with Kasper Wilstrup and the road to coming up with a new kind of AI. So it's 2012, and Kasper is at the end of a sabbatical. He started after leaving the hardware startup. He started drawing his studies, Unispeed, at the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen. Just as he was starting to head back into the job market, deep learning achieved a major breakthrough in object classification, propelling the technology to the heights it is now. This is also when AI sparked Kasper's interest, and he remembered his old idea. What happened was that I did due diligence, so that is I analyzed a company on behalf of a Danish, large Danish venture fund, a company called Blackwood 7, that I really liked. So they were using AI technology. I think that's when AI really jumped into my mind as a, as a thing. Before that, I was thinking about my ideas and data analysis as that data analysis. Now, I, I gave it a new name. People had figured that out before me, but for me, it's, it suddenly became, oh, so what I'm really going thinking about when I'm thinking about these graphs and stuff, that's AI, at least in a certain sense. So you kept, you still kept thinking about your, your initial idea from you? Not so much the initial idea, but but a lot of the additional thinking I'd done later on on, on just data analysis, yep. uh, large-scale data processing, pattern finding and stuff uh, that, that has played a big role in a lot of the other things I'd done, was suddenly given a conceptual name, and that was AI. And then I also, I didn't really, I, I studied deep learning on neural networks, as they were called, in, in the mid-90s as well. Uh, they were a little hot there. There was a, a small mm. flourishing of, of, of uh, neural networks there. So I didn't know what a neural network was, but not really. Right? So then in the mid, uh, there in 2013, 14, I came across this entire space of AI uh, and these uh, pretty impressive, uh, impressive founder people. So like I said before, what I really liked about them was that we had real business experts in the place they wanted to, uh, to operate, which is something called media mix marketing, which is about not what most people do in marketing, in, in, in tech startups in marketing, but on the highest level where how do you actually allocate your resources in terms of, say, TV advertisement or newspaper advertisement or billboard advertisement, that, those kind of things. Uh, so that, that's called media mix modeling or media mix uh, planning. Um, and that's their idea was to use AI and machine learning in, in that space. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just, I liked the idea and I liked them and I thought that they were onto something and I felt I had something to contribute with. So I actually ended up joining Blackwood 7. Uh, so I, I left Best Brains and jumped on board in Blackwood 7 as, as the CTO. Yep. And that was a very interesting experience. Again, I had a lot of my ideas we talked about before uh, about how to organize and how to bring the best out of people and how to succeed. And we did do well. Uh, when I joined, we were five people. And when I left, we were 250. So that, I guess that was fairly good. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but I also, throughout the process, had thoughts about we were perhaps not doing things the way I would like them to be done. So 2017, I left the company um, in its heyday and, uh, and took another sabbatical. I took about a year where I was just thinking about what to do now. Uh, I worked a little bit for Best Brains again. And you took uh, it off your, your old study notebooks with the... Uh... That's when it happened. That's when I said, all right, AI is cool. And I'm pretty good at coding things that run fast. And I can do algorithms. I can do... I, I, I have most of what it takes. I also have some business uh, expertise by now. I couldn't do it by myself, though, because there was a lot of things to be done to build this. It's like inventing a new AI approach from scratch can seem like a rather daunting task. Neural networks weren't invented in, in a single day by a small team, right? So I've, I realized there that I couldn't do this by myself. So I wrote a prototype and I demoed that to a couple of my friends. High how performance computer. did it take you? The prototype, I think six months. Um, where I was just sitting in front of my computer and coding these prototypes and visualizing them in, in this 3D space, uh, this, these different connections of 
finding algorithms. Mm. Did you uh, write it in, in Python or Fortran? Or uh, no, I tend to write in C, uh, and I still do. My two most used languages is Python and C. Yeah. Uh, but like most people say, it's much slower to code in C. I'm not really with me. I'm, I'm actually, it's almost my native language. I can always think in C. I guess it comes from my assembly approach from, yeah. from back in the spectrum days. So machine code, C, whatever. I'm, I'm a little peculiar in that. But it also means that I can get the most out of my algorithms. And then I showed it to my, my network of strong AI, high-performance computing engineers to put together a founding team that wanted to take the risk of building a completely new, unproven brainchild of Casper uh, AI algorithm to take on the big guys who've been working on neural networks for for a couple of decades, and that 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 some people said yes, some people said no, uh, but we ended up how many, how many did you ask? Ten, something like that, and uh, we ended up being seven yep. uh, people who who actually found it. so all, all technical. No, six very technical people, and and then depending on how you count me, because I really think of myself as, as both a technical and a, and a business-oriented person. But anyway, I am, in, in, in the role that at least in the beginning, very technical. Uh, and then we knew that we had to have at least somebody who wasn't a tech nerd. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then uh, we joined forces with my brother, Jonas, uh, who was the seventh founder and the only non-technical founder. Okay. Um, so seven people all in all uh, set out to build this technology. We didn't have a name for it. First, we called it I think in the prototype, I called it Machine Cognition Labs. Uh, so that was the name of, of the company before it was founded. Uh, Rolls nicely over the tongue. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it, let me say it was voted down <laughs> when we had the founding session for us, which was in, in, was it November 17, where the people who ended up founding the company met, except for one person, in, uh, in uh, Nectar Connectar, which is a... Uh, hot in the middle of nowhere in the Spanish Pyrenees, uh, where we spent a long weekend or a little a short week just doing the business plan for what are we going to do? Are we going to found this company? What should we call it? Mm -hmm. How should we organize? Who uh, who owns what? Uh, all that stuff that it takes to that you need to agree on. I guess that was originally complicated with seven people. It wasn't complicated. Uh, it took some time, but it, I think we had... Nobody really wanted to to get the better of anybody else. So in that sense, yep. we okay. uh, we got off to a good start by being reasonable, friendly, rational, analytical people, all of us. Uh, but there was still a lot of detail about that. Yeah. So what if a founder actually wants to leave? Then it's pretty important. That's one of the most important things to have agreed upon up front. Um, <laughs> otherwise, it can destroy a company. Um, and particularly if you're a lot of founders, then... It's very likely to happen for allocation reasons, or well, well, one one bad outcome can be that say say a couple of the founders choose to leave, and they among them own say twenty or thirty percent of the company. Then you have thirty percent of your cap table being taken out. So that's a passive bonus. So you already have investors, so to speak, people who no longer contribute, but who's also not paid in, paid any money into the company, mm -hmm. only a large part of the cap, cap table. So due to the way of the shares in the company, so due to the way the VC industry thinks about things. You have to hold back on giving out your shares so that you have more shares to give out as you raise more and more uh, money in the in the life cycle of the company. So if you give away shares too early, then uh, you, then you can't raise nearly as much money as uh, as if you don't. And uh, and it doesn't matter that you can say to your investors, "That's okay, we don't care about this ownership thing." The investors care about the the founders' ownership situation. Because they, they believe and often also write in assuming that this really in the long run plays a, a strong motivational role. So if you have lost a lot, large part of your cap table early on in, in, your, in your life cycle, then you're in trouble. So it was pretty important uh, to figure out if, we, if somebody wants to leave Absu, how can we ensure that they don't leave with a large amount of shares, at least not any more than what is fair compared to their contribution. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is perhaps the most thorny thing that we had to decide on at Nectar Connector in our founding session. But actually, I think 80% of the time was spent coding. Uh, we are who we are. So coding in the day and uh, drinking beers or sitting around the fireplace in the evening. And, that. and your brother was yes sitting, sitting there and thinking, and what the <laughs> hell are these guys talking about? Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, and that was the birth of Apsu. Um, so I, it just so happened that I had called the technology, uh, the prototype was called Lib Apsu. Uh, 
Um, so when you write a, a library in C, you often prefix it with lib. Um, so it essentially meant that it was called Apsu, right? So I, I had given the prototype the name Apsu, and not why Apsu? Yes. So Apsu is is actually a Sumerian word, and this now Goes this back points to back to the book. Yeah. <laughs> so to do the book, I the book was actually a manifestation of my love for a certain ancient culture called the Sumerian culture, which uh, thrived in in. Uh, Southern Mesopotamia, what's now Iraq, in 4000 BC to about 1500 BC. And these were the people with the clay tablets and cuneiform uh, writings on the clay tablets. Mm -hmm. Very formative, and they have played a very big role in the formation of what we think about today as civilization. People tend to not know about them and think that perhaps the, the Egyptians invented writing. Uh, and all the other things that the Sumerians actually invented, but they didn't. The Egyptians did not invent writing, the Sumerians did. Yep. And that's perhaps one of the stories I wanted to get out with the book that I wrote. But anyway, I have a strong passion for this specific culture, and I've studied it, and I've taught myself to, to read Sumerian cuneiform as a, as a nerdy little hobby. Uh, and so I have a passion for that. And Apsu is a Sumerian word that originally meant the subterranean water. Uh, essentially, no religious connotations other than the water underneath the ground. But it also had a religious connotation as the source of everything. Okay. So in writing this core library in so, which we could run the simulations of these uh, finding paths, but really graph search algorithms, I called that the source of everything in Sumerian. Bold statement to make when starting a company. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, when, when naming a library, it's perhaps not as bold. People, you just have to... <laughs> come up with something yep. uh, and uh, and I think also the temple of the main god of Iridu who is a main character in my book is uh, is called e Apsu, the house of Apsu um, and uh, so it, it just I guess the word just rolled off my tongue so I called the library of the prototype Lib Apsu okay. and then it was actually Victor yep. uh, who uh, said let's call the company Apsu uh, and uh, I was against it and I can't remember why I just was um, but machine cognition labs obviously didn't work that well either. So at the end of the day, we called it Apsu. Unfortunately, what happened about the same time is that a small gaming company called, I yeah. think Squid Games, launched a computer game called Apsu. Oh, yes. and, uh, and it took us a couple of years to overcome the, uh, them as at least being on the front page in search results when people search for Apsu. I think now we are. <laughs> but 50-50? Uh, Every yeah, time I looked. But yeah, on, and on YouTube, it's I think on YouTube you were on the top, and then if you scroll further down, because there's only so many videos about you guys. Yeah, obviously at some point that stuff pops up. Exactly. So, uh, so we're we're starting to be able to be found by me, but that's but, that's uh, just a fun, fun little interesting challenge that we have. But there wasn't a conversation via lawyers yet in between, or did you call them at some point? Not like, at all, because we. Actually, we trademarked the name Apsu, and the guys with the game did not. I think they have now, but but in, when you trademark a name or register a trademark in first Europe, as we did, and then later on in the US, you have to trademark it in a class. Uh, so and that's called what's called a Nice class, the Nice convention that, that okay. agreed on this. So we protected the word Apsu in the in the classes that make sense for us, which is any kind of computer consultancy and software, class 42 and 9, if you're interested. <laughs> um, and uh, and they did not. They trademarked the word absolute entertainment. Mm -hmm. So there's no way we can battle them. Uh, we wouldn't win that case. We don't have um, prominence enough to say that we have we have claims to the name outside of the trademark uh, classes that we can trademark it in ourselves. No. If, uh, if, if that wasn't the case, the world would very quickly run out of names for companies. <laughs> You came out from this coding weekend in the Spanish Pyrenees with a name, with a definitely working prototype. Yes. Where everyone was just looking at like, what the hell is actually going on in there? What, like, it's pure magic, essentially? Yeah, well, so I, I should probably admit that I wouldn't really say that the prototype was working. Okay. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it, it proved the concept. Uh, it proved that by using graph search algorithms like this one, you could find the most parsimonious a simple relationship the simplest graph that could explain something yeah uh, so i think I th at the prototype i've written a couple of data points about names and ages and the prototype quickly come up with saying oh what we have here is actually that each of these numbers must be the age of the people in this list so it was able to relate uh, the numbers to the birth dates to the names of the people in the list by doing this efficient graph search yep. uh, of all possible explanatory graphs that could predict, that could say, what are these numbers? So that was what the prototype did. did and, you, and with that prototype, you went to VCs for 
for money. Yes, that's oh. that's actually the prototype that we went to VCs with, and and of course also business plan. How uh, did you explain it to them? Because not every VC has extensive knowledge in finance, path and growth and graph search at the same time. Uh, for sure not. Uh, I guess I guess I had this unfair advantage that the people in the VC industry knew me. I guess I, I, I could base the initial founding of, on, of Absu on trust uh, in in me and the people I put together as a founding team. Otherwise, I don't think it would have been possible because it is it, it, it is um, it is very rare and typically not a particularly good idea to start a company with a tech idea and not a product idea. Uh, that's uh, that's about as risky as, as it gets. And particularly here, we had we didn't really know if we could make this technology work. And I, I would say our early investors, it was fair for them to really question how likely is it that this half-studied physicist and his friends can <laughs> uh, can actually build an AI algorithm that that can that can outperform the big outperform ones, or at least do something that the big ones cannot, and and come up with a conclusion that that's not particularly likely. That would be a fair analysis. It would have been my analysis in many situations if I hadn't known me a priori. Um, but, but also, some of these people didn't know me a priori. It so. seems like a, a high risk, high reward bet. Exactly, and I guess that's why they did it, right? Yeah. So if you want to do these kind of, that's it's, nowadays people are talking about deep tech investments, and this this word has really flown to the surface. Everybody wants to do deep tech investments nowadays. And, and back then, this is four years ago, that wasn't even the case. Uh, another word that often was used was a moonshot, uh, referring to 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 the Kennedy statement of "I want to put a man on the moon." Mm. How likely is that? Well, it mattered. they did it, but you wouldn't have believed it, right? And I still find it hard to believe looking at the computers they had on that space. <laughs> but anyway, we got that initial investment to build, to go from prototype to to working AI algorithm. And uh, and that took us about two years to do that. And uh, in 2018, uh, we, we had the final or the fully functional algorithm running on a supercomputing cluster in uh, in a data center in Germany where we could really put in data and uh, find rather difficult to find, actually incredibly difficult to find explanations in that data and prove that it worked by putting in data where we knew what the explanation was beforehand. So yep. I see if we put in data about the orbit of a planet and then out comes uh, Kepler's laws of planetary motion. That That's that's a good thing, right? Because it, that's hard to find in the data set. So and it requires you to look at a lot of options because elliptic equations are not that straightforward, uh, but it does work and it does find it. Yeah, interestingly enough, there was a paper a month ago, one and a half months ago, which exactly that, did that with graph neural networks and then some symbolic expression for, I think, Newton law and then not respectively Kepler. But yeah, yeah, that's so the, the AI Feynman in it. So there's an, there's another. There's another thing that's called Feynman. So we, we we call our library the one you use to interact with our technology. We call that Fine after yep. Richard Feynman. Uh, but fortunately, unfortunately, whatever, another group of people have done a another symbolic symbolic approach, uh, which actually does use neural networks under the hood. Uh, that is called AI Feynman. So here's another name clash. But that may be the paper you come <laughs> across, um, uh, because it, the way they really prove it is by taking all the Feynman equations. And uh, generating synthetic data corresponding to the Feynman of all the equations from Feynman's lectures of physics, not the Feynman equations, no. um, and and taking all those uh, those uh, data sets that are synthetic, and then proving that the AI Feynman is symbolic regression engine can find it. But so can our technology. That's easy. It's not actually hard to find those. What's much more different, difficult to find is uh, is the kind of thing that we work on nowadays, where you're looking for, say, genetic fingerprints for certain diseases or understanding why certain cancers grow in a certain way. But maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here because what, what I really want to say is, is referring back to 2020 when the algorithm was done. We had this, it was a pretty powerful supercomputer that we needed to run the algorithm on at the time, but it could find these rather complicated uh, explanations and data. This is the moment where we knew that we, that we had uh, struck gold, right? Because that now we have an algorithm that finds explanations and that works and competes in terms of performance because it finds the correct explanations with the black box models, neural networks, and so on. No. Um, but which actually, if we know what the real explanation is because we generated the data ourselves, finds that explanation. So this that that was a golden moment, I, I would say. And that was the moment where the, our initial investors could, I guess, breathe a sigh of relief because now it was no longer a tech risk. Now it became a product risk. 
Yeah. What are we going to do with this awesome new technology? So if you have invented an engine, nobody buys engines. People that buy buys cars, right? So we had the next thing that has to to happen when you have a technology like that is to figure out how are you going to take this to market. Um, so here starts the journey that is the first step for normal startup companies. Yeah. Uh, but of course now with us having a, a unique advantage in this technology that that gives us this this market benefit. So that's where we found ourselves in in April 2020. Uh, we also found ourselves in a world where COVID had just happened. Um, so <laughs> it, it was, <laughs> I, you, I think yesterday, one of my investors asked me, do you think that hindered your growth? It's of course, that's that's a what if game. No. Um, where you don't know the other option. Exactly. So I can't really say that, but what I can say is I know what it meant because there are at least two concrete things that happened before because of COVID. One was that we, when we started to think about what to do with the technology, we created a list of things to do. Uh, we wanted to do something in finance analysis. We wanted to do something in insurance. We wanted to do something in uh, in predictive maintenance. And we wanted to do something in uh, time series forecasting in the general sense. Uh, and we wanted to do something in pharma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the pharma thing probably wouldn't have been on the list if it hadn't been for COVID. Because none of us, none of us in the company are like that. We're mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists, those kind of people. No, and by now a lot of bioinformaticians as well. By now a lot of bioinformaticians, but by then not. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so we we it was it was a we went pretty systematically about it. Say, okay, we have a technology. There's a ton of things. Actually, this technology solves a problem, the problem of explainable AI, which is very big in a lot of verticals. But it also takes a while to, to get a traction of foothold in an industry. So you, you better choose wisely mm-hmm. when you choose what to do first. doesn't mean the last thing you do, but the first thing you do needs to be wisely chosen. So we spent actually the first year just piloting out what happens if we use this in these different verticals how what would a business model look like how are we going to make money can we sell this do people want to listen to us when we come uh, and talk about this awesome new technology and the place where we found the most traction was uh, was in the life science space yeah and uh, reflecting on why well but how, how do you demo it to potential life science customers because you you obviously can't go there with the hard mathematical details because it might be no too much and just not but, but remember, with. customers don't care about that. Customers care about outcomes. Yeah. So if you're a if you're a uh, scientist like my close collaborator Michael Christiansen from the State Serum Institute, if you are that guy, what you care about is understanding the diseases you study, for instance. And he studies uh, a lot of uh, of diseases in, in in pregnant women, and one of them being preeclampsia, for example. Preeclampsia is a, is a disease that hits pregnant women in, yep. in, in third trimester, and it's actually rather severe, causes very high uh, hypertensive, uh, uh, high blood pressure, and it, uh, it unfortunately often kills the fetus. And it's, it's, it's not a good thing. So that's what he studies. He had a lot of data about how these women look from a, say, measurement perspective, blood samples uh, and, uh, and, and urine samples and so on. And then putting that data in and out came some very simple, elegant models that said, well, there's a certain relationship between these two hormones that seems to be in this certain way for the women who develop preeclampsia. And looking at that model, not so much the way that its ability to predict, but what, what impressed a person like him is that, oh, I never knew that this hormone plays this role in, that, uh, in, in this disease. But now that I know, I can actually understand why. So suddenly, so suddenly, his his he. So it's it is retroactively understanding based on the model it spits out. Exactly. But doesn't that infer some confirmation bias? Uh, yes, yes, and that's yes. that's that's why um, this is a hypothesis. It's it's a step in the scientific method. So what we can do with this is we can tell you how likely is it to be. A, a let's say a spurious thing it doesn't actually correspond to real data. So once you have a, a closed form mathematical formula, you can also calculate the probability of it being an a, a, an accident that it fits the data to okay. the accuracy that it does. So it's equivalent to what a scientists would call a p value, but it isn't quite a p value. It's actually we use different criterions to calculate the probability of this being lock uh, and in here being lock in the sense that it actually doesn't match the data and. And that means that it's one of the knobs you can turn on when you use our, our technology, the, the QLADS is, is one of the, the knobs you can actually turn on is your risk willingness in getting models that might not be true. But anyway, when you get the model out, the entire point is that the model is white box. You can see what it says. Yep. And that means that you can relate that to information you knew beforehand. So let's say the, pre, the pre-eclampsia case. 
outcomes of hormones that, that's, that's called leptin. Leptin is produced by the adipose tissue in the body, it's fat tissue in the body. So having that there means that if you have a high leptin level, you're also very likely to be obese. And it is well known that obese women have a much higher risk of developing preeclampsia. Actually, obese people have a much higher risk of developing any kind of hypertensive disorder. So the fact that the model picks up this hormone doesn't seem controversial at all. Right? But if it had picked up, uh, say, the zip code of the woman or, or <laughs> yeah. some other silly thing, then it, the, the researcher would immediately say, that's... Unlikely. Unlikely. So I'll just discard this hypothesis and move on to the next one in the list that the QLATS produces. Uh, and that's perfectly fine. That is the scientific method. Right? You, have, you, get, you, you get a hypothesis out, and then you, you choose to believe, you, you postulate that this hypothesis is true. Next step is, of course, to prove that it is true. Uh, but that doesn't matter whether it came from a machine learning algorithm or whether you popped it out of your head or whether it came out of the QLATS. Right? It's, it's, it's not true until you've proven it to be true. Uh, so, so what you do with the hypothesis, you make new predictions, and then you go out and falsify, try to falsify those predictions in, yep. in real life. Uh, but it's impossible if the model is black box. You, what are you going to falsify? What, you're not, you don't know what it is that, you're, that your model is actually saying. Whereas Michael, looking at this model, is saying, well, the higher leptin level and the lower leptin soluble receptor level, and uh, that combined with a very unfortunate sub-range of, of a hormone called resistine, which indicates that, that, that you have an autoimmune reaction. This is what the QLATS says. So this specific thing is something I believe in. And to test it, I can go out and look at women who have preeclampsia and confirm that they tend to have this specific level of resistine associated with this autoimmune reaction, and thereby gradually building up evidence for the hypothesis. At this stage, it doesn't matter where the, where the hypothesis came from. So this is returning long unwinded way back to your question. The researcher using our technology does not care why the QLATS works. They care about whether the hypothesis that comes out of the QLATS can be put through a scientific rigorous process because it's the hypothesis that matters. Uh, I spoke with another guy at one point who says it's, it's kind of like putting on a thinking hat. Right? The QLATS doesn't actually answer the question. It helps you come up with potential answers for the question. You as a in this case, scientist, still has the onus of taking that hypothesis and proving it. Mm -hmm. And in some situations, you can just risk it. You can say, I'm, I'm going to believe this because I'm not going to use it as a research publication. In other situations, you have to accept that it's just a hypothesis and you have to set up a new prospective study of some kind to actually prove that it's the case. A lot of our customers today use it in, in drug development where what you're really studying is the, the properties of molecules. So a, a crash course on drug development or on, on, um, on, on the pharma life cycle is first you have some kind of thing in the body, a gene or a protein or a virus or something you want to interfere with. Mm -hmm. uh, that's called a target. You can have a lot of ideas about how to design a molecule that would actually interfere with that target, depending on what the target is. If it's a gene, it can be an RNA therapeutic approach. If it's, a, if it's a protein, you can try with small molecules or different other approaches. But anyway, you're trying to find a molecule that will do something to that target. So this is the next step. When you get to that step, it's really hard to figure out what actually defines whether a drug will work or not. So one thing is it will, will, will bind to the target. That's fair. But how efficiently will do that? How quickly will the body get rid of it? Will it have side effects? Will it be toxic? Will it work on everybody? Are there subpopulations for which it's dangerous? And so on and so on. All these questions are very hard to answer with a new molecule. But given the QLASs, you can actually get hypotheses about what actually causes, say, toxicity in a drug. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you can, you can choose in your design of your molecules to design ones that you, based on these hypotheses, believe will not be toxic. And then this is not really as such a scientific endeavor. You're just increasing the likelihood. You have to prove it anyway during your clinical trials. That's how drug development yeah. works, right? Eventually, you have to test this first on animals and then on humans. Um, so if you trust the, the, the model, it doesn't so much matter whether the rest of the world trusts the model. So that's definitely by far our biggest use case. People studying data about molecules and the way they interact with the body to understand the interaction so that they can better design molecules that does or does not do the things they want these drugs to do. Yep. Um, so what, what we have here is actually people with a very strong scientific mindset who cannot use black box machine learning. That won't do anything for them. They don't want to predict whether a molecule is toxic. They want to understand why it's toxic. Yeah, uh, to, to not uh, design molecules that are toxic, yeah. right? They want to, so uh, they, the, the understanding is important because they want to intervene. They want to change something. 
Uh, and you can only do that if you understand. Uh, so you have people with a scientific mindset who care about explanations and who also have money to spend. Because this is an industry where, where it's a high-value game. So what we found here is an industry that is willing to actually risk doing business with a small Danish-Spanish startup company just because... Uh, Why are you in Barcelona as well? Uh, that's because some of the founders are from Spain. Okay. So the people... Is this to be... Well, actually, the majority of the founders are in Spain. Okay. <laughs> the original seven people, four of them, there was three Spanish and Italian and uh, and three Danes uh, in the group. So in the beginning, we were just as much a Spanish company as a Danish company. That was one of the other things that changed during, during COVID. Uh, the lockdown in Spain was so more, so much more severe mm. that it meant that... Um, that our growth in Spain was really hindered. So, so everything that happened during uh, at least the early parts of the co- uh, periods of the COVID uh, pandemic was, uh, was, uh, was here in Denmark. So that really hindered the growth of the Barcelona office. Originally, the intention was always to have these be two about equally sized legs. Um, but, but the core reason is that uh, when, it, when I set out to find the best people I've known and that I've gotten to know in, in AI and high-performance computing and so, they just didn't happen to be Danes. <laughs> and then we agreed on these two locations. And in the beginning, it didn't matter so much because it was just a, a small room at a, at a co-working space that we, that we rented. But, uh, but nowadays, we have a pretty big room at a co-working space in Barcelona. And then we have this office here, Rural City, where the majority of the apps are, as we call ourselves. And we're about, I think we're 25 people here, and uh, no, 24, and six people in the Barcelona office. Okay. Yes. So anyway, that's life science. That's why we went into life science. Uh, and uh, and it was interesting because none of us knew anything about life science. I barely knew what a what a RNA molecule was. Of course, I knew what it was, but you know, no, You've no heard about it. not really a real connection with with that. Um, and we had mathematicians and high performance computing software engineers and so on, but nobody. Used so we just went in blind. Um, but uh, we quickly learned and did some interesting projects together with some some pretty big pharma companies. And, uh, and then we started hiring people who could really fill the gap and be the domain experts in the space. So nowadays we have uh, some of the strongest um, thinkers and, uh, and practitioners in, in several fields within farm and life science, and particularly in drug development, and particular in the field called RNA, RNA therapeutics. Mm-hmm. And of course, mRNA vaccines being one of those uh, kinds of drugs is the COVID vaccines that we all know and love. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but, but so that's, that's um, currently, if you look at us from the outside, we are perhaps one of the strongest powerhouses, at least in Denmark, perhaps in the world, in understanding the properties of RNA molecules in, in, in a drug capacity, both because we have these people that we've hired, but also because we have a, a technology that allows us to learn and learn and learn and learn yeah. about how these molecules actually react and interact with the body. So you had your seven founders, and then it's people are currently in Barcelona. Twenty-five are here. Yes, um, I learned earlier that you matched your your lunch times to uh, Spain. Yeah, which is uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's taking some uh, getting used to for some of our <laughs> Scandi- Scandinavian colleagues that yeah. we eat lunch at one, and we all eat lunch together, uh, and we have a screen over here so we can turn it on and look at yeah. each other. Um, we use that a lot in general, yeah. um, and uh, that's just um, that's part of our culture. Yeah. So everything, everything screams transparency, essentially. Yes, uh, yes, yes. I think, I guess it's a theme in my way of thinking, transparency. Why do I care so much about building transparent and clear and explainable AI models? Well, perhaps because I just care about no. transparency. And Absu is a company that is absolutely focused on transparency. We don't have secrets internally. None. You, you you have this little blog article on your new website that you are a uh, teal. Teal is a is a is a term that some people apply to to this self managing organizational culture that is getting more and more popular, uh, where you really trust people to make all sorts of decisions on their own right and to figure out how to organize and work groups and and teams and so on on their own. Uh, so there's no authority in Absu. So there's a certain grouping of people who, who think a lot and write a lot about this way of organizing, and they've given it the name Teal after a book uh, called um, Reinventing in Organizations by a Belgian uh, writer called Frederik uh, Lalu. Uh, and he is certainly one of the people who has done a lot of thought, thinking and a lot of good writing on, on self-managing organizations. So essentially everyone is... Well... 
it's a bit like the dichotomy in, in school when you're 18 and you technically still depending on the school and depending on the age you grow up have to ask if if you're allowed to go to the toilet but at the same time you're supposed to make this massive decision on what to do next which will essentially have a major impact in your life and <laughs> yeah funny it, it seems similar in a normal working environment your life you're working hours everything is somewhat given where here people well not technically allowed us to do as they want because there's still some some common goal that everyone has to work forwards to yes but but it is in the words right they are allowed to do what they want because we trust them to not just do anything yeah so self-managing doesn't mean no management it means that we rely and expect that people will manage themselves what doesn't work in a self-managing environment is if people think that it's about no management and doing whatever they feel like today no um so everybody here, it's not like nobody's a manager, it's more like everybody's a manager. Okay. Uh, and that's an important distinction. And I think that's something that people who think that this kind of approach will degenerate into chaos, which it clearly does in some of the most successful companies out there. I can name a company like Netflix as an example, are actually very deep into the self-managing culture without embracing it to the level that we do. Mm-hmm. But it certainly isn't a, a, a fact that you can't become big just because you're, you, you're self-managing. But it does require that you realize that it's about training and coaching and educating people at management. So they have to actually do that. It, it, they have to set goals. They have to ensure that these goals are aligned with the corporate goals. They have to work together to, to define corporate goals. They have to, to think and reason about what happens if these goals are not met. So essentially, everybody here has to take full responsibility for, for the future of Absu. Uh, and they can only do that if they know as much as anybody about the current state of Absolute. That's transparency and, and self-managing cultures placed together in that sense. If you make decisions in, in the dark, you're about to make, make that bad decisions. So a lot of people who think that people can't make decisions for themselves in a corporate setting actually know from experience that people do make bad, bad decisions, but maybe the root cause is not that people are stupid, but that they are not given enough information about the current state of affairs to make the right decisions. I would also assume that it attracts the kind of people that are able to do that to begin with. Yes. You are the person that wants to be told what to do, which is by no means bad. It has advantages and disadvantages. Exactly. And I, then you probably wouldn't be interested in working here to begin with. No, you probably wouldn't apply for a job here and you probably wouldn't like it if you did. Yep. Uh, because uh, with the responsibility comes a certain level of worries uh, and a certain level of dedication uh, that... I by no means want to make that uh, into a, a merit in its own right. There's there's certainly a perfectly valid way of thinking about your life where your work life is just something you do because something else matters to you. I think to almost everybody, something matters. It can be that it's your hobby. It can be your family. It can be your riding, your hiking, your, your bicycling, whatever. There's, but most everybody I know, at least all happy people I know, have something that they really care about. But that doesn't have to be their work. Yep. And if, if it's not at all their work, but the work is really a means to, say, gather resources to do that other thing, then a self-managing environment like Apps is probably not going to be particularly nice for you. you. You probably do want to just be told what to do or do a fairly simple thing so you can get the money and, and, and the resources to do that other thing that you really care about, which is absolutely fine. Yep. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not going to make you a, a happy upside. Um So... So that's, um, that, that's, that's the reality of it. So I don't think that there is a future where all companies are self-managed. I think there's always going no. to be some people who want to go into a more hierarchical structure and just play their role in that context and then take their creative energies elsewhere. Yep. I don't know about the future of Absu. I don't know what we will look like organizationally, culturally, five, ten years from now when we're a lot of people. Uh, but for now, at least, we are a bunch of people who take this very seriously and, and who really care about, uh, about Apsu. And therefore, it is the passion of a lot of people. And that has a lot of interesting effects. Like we, we are the best of friends. We have a very strong network internally because we care about the same things. Mm-hmm. Essentially, since our hobby is the same thing, it's Apsu. Again, all of us have other hobbies as well. I have this crazy Sumerian culture thing. <laughs> uh, other people play the guitar. and it's like. But I think most everybody here would say that Apsu is probably one of the biggest passions of, of, of their lives. Yeah. Everyone has something. Everybody has, has, has their hobbies, right? Yeah. And, uh, so, and, and, uh, and you've chosen this one. probably have others as well. I imagine your studies probably also matters to you. Uh, but, uh, 
but uh, but and that's that's it, right? So um, so that's how Absu works as a as a um, as a company, and uh, and it's it's it what it does do it brings out extreme amounts of creative energy. Without this approach, we couldn't have built the Q lattice. I can say that for absolute sure. Mm-hmm. If you try to put Q lattice development into a rigorous top-down hierarchical scheme of you do this, you do that, and some boss figuring out what everybody should do now. That boss would have to be a genius beyond the beyond the, beyond human capabilities to achieve what we have achieved. Uh, so, so this that's not the way to do it. The next question is not necessarily meant to, I don't know, for lack of a better term, question the integrity, but everything is about transparency. Um, yet i couldn't find the explanation of like how it actually works because you said earlier before we started recording that well it's basically you against the giants and you would want to keep it from them as long as possible so you have some sort of market advantage in the next one two three four five years yes so the way i see that is there there are two classes of secrets there are, there are secrets that are ours in in a grouping the absolute secrets if you think about it as a family then it's a family secret and then there are secrets that other people own, but which they share with you and therefore have a right to decide what you can do with. That's like our customer secrets. They, they, they tell us sometimes things that we are not allowed to share freely in certain ways. So they apply restrictions on those secrets. Yep. So secrets is a thing and they're valid and they're necessary uh, and they belong to somebody. And the people who own those secrets choose how to share them. And the thing that we have chosen in Absolute is that all the secrets that belong to us are freely shared inside of Absu. Uh, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily freely shared with the rest of the world. Like, for instance, uh, for now at least, everybody in Absu, we have a, a spreadsheet where you can see what, what salary everybody has in Absu. We have not shared that spreadsheet with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're actually talking about it. I don't necessarily see why we wouldn't, but but people, people could have sensitivities about that. So it's not an option to keep it secret internally, but it is an option to keep it secret externally. So if you think about it like that, secrets belong to somebody and they choose who to share it with. So I'm not, I'm not a transparency fanatic in the sense of, say, Richard Stallman and information wants to be three and secrets shouldn't be allowed in, in, in no, your but, private but life. You, but you could apply for a patent. We are applying for a patent. And, okay. and, and if, if and when we get that patent, we may consider publishing. We probably will. My, my, my personal biggest struggle with it is that I really want to understand it and I couldn't find the paper. And then you have to apply for a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way forward here. If you really want to see the source code, then, then you have to apply. Okay. For now, at least, the, the secret source of the QLATS is, is a secret that is fully freely shared inside of Absu yep. because we own it, but it doesn't. We, we have good reasons. Which, and I must say, my open source heart, I was a part of the Linux community. I was part of, I've been a part of research communities in a lot of contexts. I live and breathe open source software. I really believe in the philosophy. I've made contributions to a ton of different open source projects across all sorts of things. And I still do. So I don't really like the fact that we have to keep uh, it secret. It also hinders us in terms of, of proving that it actually works and some, meet some kind of skepticism now and then where it, it, it would be a little bit easier if we just say, look. But, um, yeah, but, but it would also destroy us. Yeah, because for, for me personally, if I were to use it, which I wouldn't know how because I just do completely different stuff and mm. wouldn't see how it would help. I personally would choose not to use it just simply based on I haven't gone through the math and I don't know how it works. Yeah, and that would be that would that, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is certainly an attitude that we meet and that I understand and that is holding us back. Yeah. So it is, it is a collateral damage of the way things, at least unfortunately for now, must be. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's not normally. I wouldn't say you should not normally not be afraid of your competition. Actually, I'm with uh, I'm with Eric Reese, uh, the guy who wrote Lean Startup, on this. If you really are so scared of of sharing your best ideas or people stealing your ideas, then try the following: take your second best idea and dedicate a year of your life to see if you can force somebody to steal that idea. And you will find that's incredibly hard. Um, people don't tend to steal ideas; they tend to get their own ideas and run with those. So. Yeah. Don't have to be that word, but there are situations where, where it certainly is the case that the idea will be stolen or applied. So stealing, it's a strong word. Let me give you an example. So there, the, most people who work in the startup ecosystem have, have uh, become familiar with a company called DeepMind. DeepMind is, uh, is uh, similar to Absu in that they also came up with 
a different approach to a certain kind of machine learning problem. Here we're in the reinforcement learning space, and they figured out a way to use uh, deep learning inside of a reinforcement learning algorithm. Uh, so that's what DeepMind invented. But remember at the time when, when DeepMind did this, when was that, 13, 12, something like that? Deep learning wasn't really that big. Yeah, okay. uh, and if you have a big decision space, in this case, what, what DeepMind did was they this ties into the story of what it tells. So what they actually started playing with is, is, um, is figuring out how to teach these reinforcement learning algorithms to play Atari games, these old console Atari games. Um, so that's, that's how they, they developed the algorithm. To do that, you have to have a neural network that can actually process a picture as an input. And mm -hmm. here we're back to Jan LeCun and the idea of even making deep learning that can work on pictures because the input space, the state space of the system you're trying to learn about is rather big, in this case a picture, but in all other reinforcement learning settings it tends to be rather big. This is why reinforcement learning with Q-tables works only if your state space is very small yep. uh, for some simple games and so on. Whereas if you uh, have a very big state space, uh, like, like the space of all screen shots of a computer game or all possible states of a chess game also and, and so on then it's not possible to fill out the table so you have to have a standing thing that can match the table and this is what you've read about but but fundamentally uh having a neural network be able to process that state space is is not that old it's like it, it, neural networks that took that big data sets as input was not really working 10 years ago at least 12 yeah, years we ago. didn't have the, the computational yeah, and and some of the core crucial, a lot of of innovations. So like deep learning, is it's it's a pretty much thrown together list of a lot of neat tricks that makes it work. Like there's a lot of issues, and then people come up with their clever little tricks and tweaks over the years, actually make these things work in practice. So more than than a single gen genius idea that made deep learning finally work, it's like a long list of little add-ons that has improved aspects of deep, deep learning, which also makes it a very complicated technology to work with, I must say. But anyway, this was not possible 10 years ago. And DeepMind made that possible inside of certain problem space. Uh, so they did a lot of research on the, deep, on the deep neural networks themselves, but also on how you fit that into a reinforcement learning loop. And that was their invention. Uh, that that really was Hassel, what's his name, Hasselblad's um, core uh, core idea, and mm -hmm. they made that work. And they proved to the world that it can work by playing Atari games. And then they published the algorithm. And within a couple of uh, months, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Tencent, Amazon was all fiddling with Q deep neural networks in the reinforcement learning loop for self-driving vehicles, for all sorts of other things that had a high prof profit value. And here sits the inventors. Having built the, the technology, having proven it works on Atari games, how to commercialize that, uh, and and what to do now. All right. So their situation was, I don't know them, I don't know what they felt like, but I would imagine sitting in a board meeting saying, oh shit, this is not fair. We built something incredible. It's going to radically change technology. And Google, Microsoft, Tencent are going to run with all the benefits of this. And that would have happened. That did happen. So they didn't have any choice. They had to sell the company to Google, which they did moderately good exit, $600 million, at least the rumor has it. It's not a bad exit, but it's also not fair in a way. It's, it's actually a sad outcome for people who really invented something as groundbreaking as that. At least that's how I would feel if it was me. Yep. And now it is me. <laughs> so how do I avoid that? Uh, and the way, I, the way I avoid it is by biding the bullet of secrecy for the algorithm, at least until the patent is in place and we have established a strong foothold in a market that's more profitable than playing Atari games. Yep. And for us, that's life science in the pharma industry. So yes, the price of that is that there are a certain category of researchers who do care about how the QDATs came about with the hypothesis and not just about the hypothesis itself, you being one of them perhaps, who will not use the technology. And that's fair. Uh, that is just the way it will have to be, at least for a while. And if that changes, I'll be one of the first to download the paper and go through it. <laughs> yeah. I would encourage you, though, to try it out. I mean, the, the hypothesis that comes out are, are fun and interesting in their own right, uh, close source or not, uh, in, in I mean, origin. Reading about it or just going through the website gave me a few ideas. Some of them are basically exactly, okay, I can do graph search with all of that. And then... Yeah. Yeah, so the wider graph search idea, that's a different topic. Uh, but, but for now, we've focused on searching a certain graph space, which is the, gra the space of all mathematical equations or formula. And that's just because there's a lot of 
things to be done in that space. But we could also search logic networks. Um, we could search algorithmic problems, like say the traveling salesman problem. Uh, we could search semantic problems, uh, where, where it's really semantic graphs that we're searching through, and so on and so on. Just haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, but we will um, as we grow and raise more money and do what's in the future with this company. Speaking of the future, besides the patent that's hopefully coming soon. Yeah, it's, it's pending. Let's see. It's pending. Um, what is going to happen in the next year, two years, besides the bioinformatician life science space? Yeah, so uh, the technology has horizontal applications. We've, we've essentially solved at least part of the black box problem of AI, which, which ties into say, the trust in AI. Do you want to use a model where... Um, so let's take an example. A lot of people assume that that, that self-driving cars use AI. Uh, and that's also partially true, but it's also not true because what the AI in a self-driving car is for image processing, for the other kind of input data to detect objects and the state of the world from, from sensory data. That's what AI is actually used for today. Once that is done, it's passed onto a closed form human handcrafted equation that somebody wrote that makes decisions about when to turn, when to brake, when to do what. Because these equations need to be white box. In order for regulatory approval and to understand what they do, when does the car brake? You have to have an equation that you can study and say, this is what it does. This is an example of a place where the equation really matters mm -hmm. uh, or the, the, the explanation that the equation covers really matters. So uh, those kind of areas is, is completely closed off for current generations of machine learning because they don't deliver that. But we do, so because we deliver that kind of equation that a regulator can then look at and say, mm, I approve, it breaks at the right times. It may be optimized to be the safest possible equation. I couldn't have told you as a regulator, but what I can tell you is that I like the way it breaks. So that 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 would what what is what you can get out of, of this approach. So we haven't chosen the next vertical. Uh, we are thinking at fi about finance. We're thinking about insurance. We're thinking about the automotive industry that I alluded to here. We're thinking about manufacturing, predictive maintenance, that, that space where you really not necessarily want to predict when a machine breaks, but understand why it breaks. Mm -hmm. um, and those are pretty much the, the verticals we go after. Uh, and we haven't made up our minds yet. Uh, and it's not something we're going to do this year, but at some point, uh, certainly, up to life science will be a running and going business, and then we'll start to think about what to do next in the next vertical. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to hear more, subscribe to Deep Tech Stories wherever you listen to your podcasts or follow me on Twitter. There will be no episode over the holidays, so you will be hearing back from me on the 13th of January with a brand new episode.